Rich began his career in the 82nd Airborne Division before joining Special Forces and then MACV SOG, the most elite and decorated unit to fight in the Vietnam War, where he did two combat tours to begin a long and storied career. Colonel Charlie Beckwith, a fellow Special Forces soldier who he met in Vietnam, became both friend and mentor and personally recruited Rich for a new unit that later became known as Delta Force. Beckwith sent Rich to a couple of specialty courses in the U.S. Army and to the British SAS selection course in England. Upon his return to the United States, he helped organize, establish, and serve in the unit during Operation Eagle Claw. He still has the keys to the garage where all the getaway vehicles were stored in Tehran and went on other deployments to Grenada, Panama, Nicaragua, Cuba, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, where he, his teammates, and his favorite animals, donkeys, aided the Mujahideen resistance to the Soviet occupation, the story recounted in Charlie Wilson's War. He also served in the Battle of Mogadishu in 1993, also known as Black Hawk Down, before retiring from the Army and then working in higher education at Fayetteville Tech Community College for 20 years. Rich has lost many friends in service to America, and by any rational account, he should not still be alive either. Service and mentorship are his great passions. The ideals of the American way of life remain his northern star, and he's never been known to turn down a cold beer or a good conversation with anyone who has something important to say. Rich should have several purple hearts, but he was always too old school to file the paperwork, claiming it to be a waste of time. So of course he doesn't have LinkedIn or Instagram, To get to know Rich, you have to listen to the podcast. And today he's here to share some of his story with us. So welcome to episode three of Glorious Professionals with Richard Rice, who I consider a national treasure and a very dear friend and mentor. Welcome to the Glorious Professionals, Rich. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jason. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Two, Two old friends back at it, this time with microphones, right? There you go. Exactly. Okay. So you had a long and storied career in the army. Kind of want to start, and, and we're going to focus on your your early days of in MACV SOG, which was you know the most elite unit in the Vietnam War. Okay. Before we start getting to that stuff, though, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you grew up, and what led you to to this kind of service. Well, I was born in Southern California, uh, raised in Washington, Oregon, and Texas. So we moved around a lot, but my dad wasn't in the military. As we moved around, we were around a lot of my grandparents and their siblings. These are people that were raised and lived through the Depression era. And I learned a lot about life from them. I grew up in an adult world as an only child, which isn't to say that's bad. We weren't particularly privileged or moneyed, but we were always comfortable because we had ourselves and we learned to make do with ourselves. And I learned, I think, as I look back on my life, I learned teamwork from them, working together with what you had to make things work. So what did that look like? Well, my dad, my mom was a homemaker. My dad was the, the, the money guy. He would bring in the money by working and he was a very diligent worker. He was a, a real solid worker and he'd learned that from his his parents and his grandparents and so on, as had my mother. And she was from Texas. He was from California. So a surfer guy and a Texas girl kind of got together and, and I was the, That's about the right, ultimate Rich. issue. <laughs> <laughs> but they were great people because we lear- I learned that we had each other 
And that's what life was all about. Family, togetherness, working together to, to make ourselves better. I mean, dinners at home every night or was your dad gone or was it? For, for the early part of my life, he was always at home because he was a, a refrigeration guy. He worked on refrigeration machines in California uh, and he would go to the desert to work on these machines and my mom and I would go with him whenever he went out. And so we did a lot of things together that you don't see people doing now. Everybody now makes a big deal about today's take your kid to work day. Every day that I was available was a take your kid to work day. And I learned to, to go and sit and shut, shut my mouth and listen and learn from others, from my dad, from the guys around him. And on weekends, he, he taught flying. And so I'd go to the little airport and as he would fly with people, I would sit in the hangar with the mechanics and learn all kinds of words that I had probably not been programmed to learn, but I did learn them. This, this ability to kind of blend in as a kid, I, I shared that as well. When I was, you know, my mom had me when she was really young. Right. She was in college. Mm-hmm. I was with her at college and she would always take me to, you know, her tennis matches or to, she'd go work out. She'd buy me a coloring book, put me in the corner and say, be good. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And, and you knew you should be good because otherwise there were going to be bad things happening to you. Yeah. I, I, how does that not work as well with my kids? I don't, <laughs> I don't know, especially my youngest these days. Well, that's okay. It didn't particularly work with mine, but they turned out okay. So I, yeah. I wouldn't worry a lot. So you're, you're spending a bunch of time in hangars. You're moving out, moving around rather, right? right? I mean, there's a certain resiliency that comes with that. Is that fair? Yeah, and it, you learn to, to kind of roll with the, the tide, whatever that might be. I'd, I'd go to visit my grandparents, and they lived on a, a, an orange grove, and my grandfather managed it in California. So he'd go out to take care of the orange trees, and I'd go with him. I mean, I, I went everywhere they went. It was just a natural thing to do. I wasn't left behind. I wasn't parked with somebody else. I went with them, and I learned to, to take care of myself. If I fell down, I picked myself up and kept going. Uh, and, and you're working. Is, right. I mean, that, that's yeah. part. Of, that's what you mean. Like yeah. We're working. Yeah. What I could do, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fix refrigeration machines, but I could hold tools and I could hold flashlights and I could do all kinds of useful things. And I learned to be part of a team that way. And so it just, to me, any kind of teamwork is just a natural thing. When, well, exactly, when exactly is this? Uh, I was born in 1948. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm an old guy, but that's okay. <laughs> and as we moved around, it was through the, the 50s and the 60s. One of the things I was thinking about is I grew up with, with my parents and grandparents and others around me. Everything about them historically was passed through oral communication. It wasn't really written down. The only thing that was written down were some, some birthdays and things like that in the family Bible. But everything was passed down orally. And interestingly enough, as I careered in the military, particularly in special operations, that oral history, the passing down from one generation to another generation, the tribal histories, if you will, was really important. And it was a great learning tool and a great educational experience for anybody that was involved in that. What was your sort of favorite memory of those times? I mean, those, those are times I wish, I, I always try to, what would I be like or what would it be like to live in these certain eras? And what was it like to grow up then? 
it was almost as if I was more in touch with life, actual life, as opposed to the technology that we have today. I was out in the orange groves walking with my grandfather, eating oranges off of trees. He just pulled an orange off a tree to, to test it and see how it was. And I remember him. He always carried a pocket knife. I usually carry a pocket knife. Mm-hmm. And, and he'd just take an orange off a tree and just cut it, slice it open. And then we'd sit there and eat that orange and determine if it was properly irrigated or whether it was, if it needed something else or whatever. But we were actually out there doing it. We weren't in the supermarket. We weren't in the farmer's market. We weren't in a grocery store. We were actually out where things were happening. And that's, that's something that I learned to really love was the outdoors, the mountains, the desert, the Wherever I was, I learned more about my environment, and I really enjoyed that. That was true because we went from California, where I was raised, and we spent a lot of time in the desert, uh, to Oregon, to Washington, to Texas. All of the varied geographies that I touched, I learned something new about each one. So, some really esoteric stuff. Like when we, when we moved to Seattle, I learned about the, the old guys that—, that they were cutting trees, the lumberjacks. They, they used like what we would call Copenhagen. Dip. And yeah, they'd dip and they, it would eat a hole through their lip. And so they'd take a piece of plaster and stick it in and then move their dip over to the other side. And it just, I remember that <laughs> it struck me as, as such strange behavior. And yet I could see that happening. I could understand that because they were isolated and they didn't have any way to go to a doctor or anything else. So they just self-medicated and went on about their business. So it's interesting the weird things you remember. (laughs) So all the moving around, what was sort of your foundation or what was your rock or what was stable in your life? Family. Family was the stability. I, I looked at each area that we went to. I looked at the kids that I was involved with and I would make friends I didn't make those long-term friends that you make and then you stay with them your entire life. I never did that. But I flipped on the other side because my parents always made every move an adventure as opposed to a hardship. So often people now, they say, oh, you know, moving is so hard to do. Well, yeah, it's hard to do, but make an adventure out of it. Make some fun out of it. You know the rule, moving in the army, right? You call up your buddies, you owe the pizza and the beer, everyone comes over and it doesn't suck or it sucks a lot less. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so they always made it exciting. And so I would meet new people. And so they made it a part of that adventure was to meet new people, gain new experiences through them and enjoy what you can. So I'm I'm probably projecting a little bit here, but I did a lot of that as as well as a kid. Did, Did the... How did you deal with the goodbyes, the loss? The goodbyes were kind of hard because I had made friends and then I knew I had to leave them. But at that time, there were no cell phones. And so everything was done written. And so I stayed in touch with a lot of those people and told them so as I was leaving. And they would tell me and then we'd stay in touch for a certain amount of time and then it would kind of drop two or off. Three, two or three letters? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe four or five. But, but that at least you maintain some kind of contact. And I would go back through those areas from time to time as we moved from one area to another and back and forth. Uh, and I would see people that I had, had known before. And so that was rather interesting. So family was your, your foundation, your rock. Was there a specific mentor or was there a specific 
influencer in your life that you would give a lot of credit to for, for who you became or your view of the world? I would probably have to give the most credit to my mom. Now, my dad was my male look up to, but my mom was the one that was always there because my dad was off earning a living and he would leave from time to time. And as when we left California, he traveled more and more. Although I have to say he worked for a pretty good company that would allow him to take us with him in the summers. He had him call back every night. I mean, pretty decent company to maintain that family uh, access. But my mom was the one. Uh, she was the one that when I was still in the womb, she used to read the, the Reader's Digest to me. And so I grew up lo loving That's to That's crazy read. you remember that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, some of it was passed to me by the tribal history. <laughs> but she was the one that was always there and, and always supportive when I, when I got hurt, when I did something, uh, when I made a mistake and needed counseling. She was the one that counseled oftentimes. She was a very strong woman. How would she counsel? She would sit down and logically talk to me. And that probably did more than just yelling and shouting. And although she could, she could get pretty stirred up from time to time. But most often she used logic and intelligence or intellect to talk to me and explain to me why a situation that I had gotten myself into was really stupid. It was a learning experience every time. So how did the, the Vietnam War start to shape your trajectory and how did your family, what was the build up to that like for, for you all as a family and for you specifically? Well, it kind of came on quickly. It, it was unexpected, actually. I graduated from high school and my dad had been in the Navy in World War II. And I had a lot of people I called uncles and cousins and, and so on that uh, had participated in some form or other. And so I knew war. I'd watched all the John Wayne movies and everything else. And, and I, I was a, a war nut. If you I, will, knew war. A I knew war. Yeah, I, I, I knew war. He says, I knew war. The older you might, might kind of disagree I, with the I, younger you. I found you. out that I didn't know war, <laughs> but I thought I did. And I had this, this idea of what it was in my head. And when I graduated from high school, I decided for better or for worse that I wasn't going to go to college. I had no desire to go on to college at that point. So I actually went to work for Pacific Northwest Bell Telephone. And I was a lineman, and then I became a cable splicer. So I was working at that, and all of a sudden, it dawned on me, as I read papers and listened to reports and so on, that I was probably going to get drafted because I was, a, I was a prime candidate for the draft at that particular time. And so I decided that maybe it would be a good idea to pick where I went as opposed to allowing somebody in some location far away from me that didn't know me choose where I was going to serve. And so I went to the Air Force initially, and they were full. <laughs> and I, I just couldn't see the Navy. I don't know why. There's nothing wrong with the Navy, but for me, I couldn't see the Navy. Well, for me, it was I didn't. I don't want to be on the ocean. Yeah. The Navy's great. My uncle was a helicopter pilot in the Navy. I love that the Navy, I just didn't want to be on the ocean on a boat. Well, in all the movies I'd watched, of course, there was John Wayne and John Wayne was either a Marine or a soldier or, or a CB. The Navy, I, I just couldn't quite see the CB. So it was like, Hmm, I got to pick something. So I happened to be walking by the army office and I stopped in to see them. 
And they were very clever. I'll give them that much, the recruiters. They, they queried me about what I like to do. And I said, well, I like to spend time in the outdoors and I like to, to do things with my hands and, and stay busy. And so he's, one question that he asked me that seemed out of character was, what have you done lately? And I said, well, I, I went camping and such. And, and he said, well, what have you read lately? And I said, well, I've just finished reading a, a series of books by a guy named Ian Fleming, James Bond. And he said, I've got just the job for you. He said, how would you like to be an agent in the army? And I immediately thought of trench coats and fedoras and, and cigarettes on a, on a dark Berlin street and passing secret messages back and forth. And I said, that, that sounds perfect to me. And he said, the only problem is you have to enlist for four years, not three. At that time, the draft was two. A normal enlistment was three, but for the Army Security Agency. With the fedora, yeah, the standard issue fedora, fedora. Four years. And I was like, okay, I, I can do that. So he said, sign on the dotted line, and I did. And he trundled me onto a bus a couple of days later and sent me to Fort Ord, California. And I got to Fort Ord and went through normal Army basic training. And about the third day we were there, the representatives from the Army Security Agency showed up and they got all of us. I think there were eight, six or eight in my company that were earmarked for the ASA, the Army Security Agency. And they said, okay, you got two choices, high-speed radio intercept and radio teletype repair. And I immediately raised my hand and said, excuse me, you, <laughs> you apparently didn't read the, the contract that I signed, I'm supposed to be an agent. And there was, I remember there was a, an officer, I believe he was a second lieutenant perhaps, and a non-commissioned officer, a sergeant. And they both laughed at me. And they said, yeah, you signed on the dotted line and it said you'll be placed for the good of the army wherever they want you. And we want you in high-speed radio interceptor teletype, radio teletype repair. When we come back tomorrow, we expect you to have made your choice. I was just, I was flummoxed. I had no idea. So I went to, went to bed that night worrying about this, woke up the next morning, and at first formation, there were two guys there. They weren't Army security agency. They were standing up on a wooden PT stand about four feet above everybody else. One was a paratrooper from the 82nd, and the other was a special forces guy. And they said, look, we're here to talk to you. We don't want to because none of you are good enough. But we've been asked by the Army or told by the Army that we will come here and talk to you and address you and see if any of you want to volunteer for the Airborne. But you're not good enough, but we're here. And that's your love language. Continue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was at that point that they set the hook in my mouth. Yep. And... I trundled off to the, the day room, a, a lounge area in the, in the barracks, and talked to them. And they said, well, yep, you can, you can get rid of the ASA. You have to keep your four-year commitment, and you can go into the Airborne. So I said, that's for me. Jumping out of airplanes, spit-shine boots, starched fatigues, camouflage cravat at the, at the neck. The Airborne guy had a spit-shined helmet liner, and the Special Forces guy had a green beret. He wasn't talking to anybody, but his name was Jack C. Davis. And Jack C. Davis and I became friends later on in my career. So I volunteered for the Airborne. The, the ASA came back and they said, oh, you know, 
what job have you chosen? And I said, not one of yours. And, <laughs> and they said, well, but, but you have to choose one of these. And I said, no, the hell I don't. I said, I've already volunteered for the Airborne. And they both got this thunderstruck look on their face. And they said, well, but, but we'll, we'll, we'll make sure you go to agent school. And I said, no, you lied to me once. I'm not going to do it again. I said, I don't believe a thing you say. Go away. I'm done with you. What I didn't realize at the time was because I had been identified from the recruiter for the ASA, the Army had already started a background security investigation on me. And so that budget, whatever it was at the time, eight or $10,000 worth of background investigation, was charged against their budget. It was given to me anyway, regardless, while I was in the Airborne. So it worked out quite well. Save for the me, airborne some cash. They love you. Right? Absolutely. But it tricked the ASA and they, they tried everything they could think of to, they said, we'll send you to OCS. We'll, we'll do anything you want. I said, no, you won't do anything because I won't listen to you. And so I went through basic training and then I went through 05 Bravo, which is radio operators, the radio operators course at Fort Ord, then went to jump school and then went to brag to the 82nd airborne division. So jump school, storied 82nd. Yeah. Alpha Company, first of the 504. It was a, a wild time. Everybody there was getting ready to deploy. We were all getting ready to deploy. Each of the brigades was, was deploying separately at that time rather than a whole division. It seemed to me that they were some great guys. I loved the duty, but I still had this in the back of my mind that I knew I was going to Vietnam and I wanted to go to Vietnam, but I wanted to be as well-trained as I possibly could because I wanted to challenge myself. That was something that, that I just inherently knew. And so I, to do that and to get the best training possible, Special Forces was right down the street, right down Arden Street on Fort Bragg. And I decided that that was the place to go. So I went down with a friend of mine and we volunteered for Special Forces and were accepted at that time. And we went into the Q course. So at that time, it's not super popular to want to go to Vietnam. Right. Right. And yet you're on an army base. You're at Fort Bragg, big mm -hmm. army base. Right. Everybody there is an army. I guess it was Pope there. It was the Air Force yeah. as well. Air Force was right. there as well at the time. So, I mean, what was the sort of cultural clash, if you will, between America and being on a military base at that time? Well, interestingly enough, it was kind of the same because on Fort Bragg, you had draftees, a lot of whom didn't want to go to Vietnam. You had enlistees that some of them did, some of them didn't. And then you had all of the volunteers like me that, that really wanted to go. So you had a cross-section of America because there were people in America that did support the war. There were people in America that didn't support the war, and there were people that were rather neutral. And so you, you still, still saw that, although the prevalence on Fort Bragg was, let's go to war and, and do what we're supposed to do. But you still had that cross-section to a certain degree. So when, what year did you start the Special Force Qualification course? Um, early 68. Okay. Yeah. That's when the Tet Offensive happened yeah. over in Vietnam. Yeah. Right. So you know that it's a fluid environment over there. It's hot. So what yeah. was it like? Because I remember what it was like for me. You know, I was in basic training when the Delta Force guys got Saddam Hussein. Right. And, you know, our first company, first sergeant came out with the newspaper and said, we got him. You boys are going to war. This is going to happen. Right. It's kind of what was it like for you to, to never have yet been? And it's just this slow build and you keep you know, you want to go that you need to go on some very primordial level. How is that hitting your psyche? 
I was lucky because the mentorship at that time of the instructors in special forces was really terrific. Uh, there were guys there that were DPs, displaced persons from World War II that had been accepted in special forces. And they, along with those that had already been to war in Vietnam, and some of them had too, of course, mentored the soldiers that were going through the special forces qualification course. There was, there, there was a cadre aspect that, that they were, were testing you, they were pushing you to your limits, and yet at the same time they were teaching you, which was kind of a new thing for most of us because we'd been through normal army schools where there was little to no mentorship. Well, here we were getting actual mentorship by people that had been there, and they would talk to us about the questions we had when things like Way came up, the Battle of Way, uh, the battles that were ongoing within Vietnam at that time. Certainly there were, there were some, I won't say fearful times, but there were some concerned times. It's like, yeah, I want to go to war, but damn it, that sounds like some deep shit. And in many cases it was. But we were getting that mentorship that made us, I won't say more qualified, but made us more knowledgeable about what to expect and what to, to plan on for when we got there. So, so what were the lessons that really sunk in? Because this is, I mean, this is the very beginning of your career. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it goes back to teamwork. You have to work as a team. You can't work as an individual. Uh, that, that team is the most important thing. And, of course, special operations is built on that, special forces. It's all about the team and working together towards a common goal. The other thing is to be self-sufficient with whatever you have at the time. You may not have everything you want. You may not get everything you want, but to work with what you have was very important because special forces at that time was built on a shoestring. It did not have the, the notoriety nor the support that it has today. So what was the living conditions in the Q course? Uh, what we was were, it like? We were living in World War II barracks, the, the old wooden barracks on Fort Bragg that had been built in 1941-ish that were programmed to last five years. We were living in them. Mm -hmm. And they were just fine. We worked, we, we did just fine as, as compared to, to what happened when we went out on the various exercises. It, it wasn't that bad. Uh, there were some newer barracks on Fort Bragg and slowly but surely they were getting them in the special forces area. But most of the time, the newer barracks and the better equipment went to the, the regular army units. Which is kind of a flip from what it is now, right? Exactly. So it's not, it's not the special forces that we think of now. And, and that's one of the, the themes of your career is you're kind of at the forefront of a lot of various stuff. I mean, you know, you go back and the, the OSS, Office of Strategic Services, was the, the forerunner to the CIA and special forces. With right. Guerrilla warfare as sort of a, a mission that was something new, right? You don't just line up right. two armies and face each other and see who can shoot better. It's sort of win by, you know, all's fair in love and war. Yeah. And so there's a huge evolution and you're, you're kind of part of that, that push in the early days here. Yeah. We didn't realize it at the time. We just, we were, we were scurrying for everything we could get. We did a lot of scrounging both at Fort Bragg and Vietnam once we got there, but it was, it was just working with what you had and working with your team. Okay. So let's talk about then what, what the mission of special forces vis-a-vis unconventional warfare was and then how you were trained in that and then what that looked like when you kind of had to put that to use. 
Well, one of the, one of the big things that we learned was, was in special forces, you have a very small team, a 12 man team, two officers, 10 enlisted, and you work with indigenous forces to a particular country, wherever that might be. And you work by, through, and with them to make things happen, to help them get a better life by learning to defend themselves, by learning to, to construct better villages, to create more sanitary conditions within their villages so they, didn't, they weren't affected as much by disease. And so it was working with those indigenous populations and understanding that there are different cultures. That was probably the biggest thing for most of us, the, the young guys that were going through at the time, because we hadn't been opened to other cultures and we were being made aware of working with other cultures and how to, how to work with them and understand that you may not agree with what they do. You may not agree with all of their culture, but at the same time, you respect it. So this is not typically what you see in war films. No. This is not what you see in the dramatizations from Hollywood or even in most books. I mean, most books, it's stories of war. It's, you know... I'm the good guy. You're the bad guy. Let's see who wins. Right. Right. So what is the benefit or the value of this kind of unconventional warfare? Like, and how did that play out for you with, with the Montagnards and your, your partner forces in Vietnam? One of the things that, that we learned that as, as I went through, through training and, and learned to work with other cultures, if you will, was we could use a minimum American force to create a maximum effort within a particular area. And so it was a 12-man team can operate and advise a much larger element, companies, even up to battalion level. And you can advise them and have them operate within their area to protect themselves, to, to further goals of America and of their culture. So as opposed to tens of thousands of troops, you have way reduced signature. Sure. Instead of sending a, a linear division of 10,000 people to secure a particular area, you might send four or five special forces teams to do the same thing. Right. So, it, it, so now you've got 60 guys as opposed to 10,000, but they're still controlling an element that would be approximately the same size. And so how counterculture is this at the time? Because, you know, how many troops did we have there at the time? And it was all about kill counts and ammunition expenditure and just more and more and more troops going over there. They were using all the conventional methods of, of counting coup and of, of justifying themselves and justifying their mission, whereas we didn't. We, we didn't look at it that way. We looked at the number of people we could impact within a particular area as opposed to how many people we could kill in a particular area. Yeah, I mean, which way do you think is more sustainable? I think our way is far more sustainable. Just sending loads and loads of people into an area to, to deny the enemy a particular area and then withdraw from that area didn't make a damn bit of sense to me. But special forces would go into an area and establish a small camp and affect multiple villages throughout the area that would be sustainable over a long period of time. And it, ultimately, at some point in time, the American special forces would, would pull out. They would leave, but they'd leave a trained, capable force behind to control that area and continue their, their activities. Okay, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Tell me yeah. about 
what the plane ride over to Vietnam was like. What was it like in your stomach? Well, when I went to Fort Bragg and went through training, since I was already a qualified radio operator, they determined that all I had to do was, was learn the SF radios because I already had the Morse code. Uh, that was a, a big part of the SF uh, training at that time was learning Morse code to maintain contact with your, with your rear areas. And so they said, look, you, you've already got this. We'll send you to operations and intelligence school. And I'm thinking, sure, yeah, fedoras and, and raincoats. But they said, no, no, we, re- we really mean it. So they picked 36 of us to go through a, an operations and intelligence course at Fort Bragg so that we had two military occupational specialties instead of one. Most special forces guys have two or three military occupational specialties. Could be weapons, could be engineers, medics, whatever. And so I picked up my second MOS military occupational specialty as an, as an 11 foxtrot at that time. 36 of us showed up at Fort Lewis, Washington and got on an airplane, a DC-8, Northwest Orient Airlines, and flew from Seattle Tacoma Airport, International Airport, to Anchorage, Alaska, refueled there, and then flew from there to straight to Vietnam, if I remember right. I don't think we didn't made another stop after Alaska. And we were the only Green Berets on there. So we kind of sat in our own little area and nobody talked to us very much except the stewardesses. They thought we were kind of cool, which which kind of pissed off the rest of the airplane, but uh, be that as it may. It's, that's their problem. And everybody was pretty rowdy and they were passing out all kinds of liquor and, and stuff on the flight. I mean, it was just, nobody was out of bounds, but everybody was just kind of whooping it up. The, the last hurrah, if you will, until we came inside of the Vietnam coastline. And I remember the first thing I was sitting on the right-hand side of the aircraft in a window seat. And I looked out and I saw a, a coastline and this big black cloud. Now, in retrospect, it was probably a friggin' trash dump. I don't know, but it, <laughs> it certainly got my attention. It's just like, ooh, that's Vietnam and that's something, an explosion or something. It was the same for me. My first day in Baghdad, I went to RPC, Rodwania Palace Complex, mm-hmm. which is where Special Operations or Special Forces specifically was headquartered. And I remember I, it's on the, the high ground. It's where Uday and Kuse used to keep their tigers and whatever okay. stuff, right? Yeah. And, the, you know, the, the toilets are all made out of gold and stuff because, yeah. you know, they had whatever. Class. Right? Class. Yeah. <laughs> I remember looking over off into the distance, general direction, Sadr City, right? Mm-hmm. Middle of right. the day. And there were just these big billowing plumes. plumes of black smoke. And I'm like, man, this is war. And it's just, that's, that's how it, it hits you sometimes, right? But it does. And it, it, it kind of hit the whole airplane because all of a sudden uh, it dawned on me as I was looking that the whole airplane had gone totally silent. Those that could see it, those that couldn't, whatever, knew that it was happening and the pilot, I think, came on and said, you know, we're making an approach to Cameron Bay and we'll be on the ground in 15 minutes. And so the whole airplane just got totally quiet. No sound whatsoever, except the engines. All that whooping up and everybody sobered up real quick. Uh, landed at Cameron, got off, and I remember the smells were, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was tropical jungle. The, the rotting vegetation from a tropical jungle, smoke that was from the the, uh, the trash dump that's kind of mixed in. So we, all these strange smells kind of accost you. 
as we came down the stairs of the airplane, got on buses with grates that were welded to this over the windows to prevent grenades from being thrown inside or I guess guys jumping out. I don't know which. And they took us over to a set of barracks, much like the ones we'd lived in uh, Fort Bragg and said, okay, all USF guys, you're in that barracks. Just go in there and wait. Somebody will come and get you. And then they took the other guys off somewhere else in the rest of the buses. And so we're sitting there in this the only difference between the, the building that we were in at Cameron Bay and, and Fort Bragg was there was a large uh, sandbag revetment around the building. We were all pretty quiet. None of us had been to Vietnam before, which was kind of strange. And so we all just kind of sat there and stared at each other and waited for somebody to come get us. And then they did. And then they did. Uh, it was late that night. We had to go find a mess hall on our own. Nobody told us about that, but we, we all got hungry, so we decided we'd go eat. So we just kind of wandered around the base till we found something. It was an Air Force mess hall that we normally wouldn't have eaten at, but they didn't seem to th- say too much about it. They just kind of let us go because we were all wearing green berets anyway, and they thought we were a little weird. So we had dinner that night, went back to the barracks, and about 9.30, this guy showed up in a set of... Uh, camouflage fatigues, tiger fatigues, and said, all you guys that are going to the fifth group, come with me. And we all trundled out to a bus. They took us out to the airport and loaded us on a C-123, which was a two-engine aircraft, and they combat loaded us. It was just pallets on the floor, and we just sat on the pallets, and there were straps running across so that we wouldn't slide around too much and flew us from Cameron Bay to Natrang. That was the fifth group headquarters at that time. So then you're there and it's like, they just rushed you to the front lines, right? No, <laughs> uh, it, it, it was kind of surreal because they, they took us into the fifth group compound and put us into a, a transient barracks. And they said, we'll, we'll get you guys up tomorrow morning and we'll make your assignments at that time. So we all got up the next morning. They told us where the mess hall was. We got up the next morning, went to the mess hall. On the way to the mess hall, lo and behold, there's a Dairy Queen in the middle of fifth group headquarters. There's a freaking Dairy Queen. Excellent. Kind of weird. <laughs> but it wasn't open yet, so we couldn't get any ice cream. But you see what the bases are like now, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to a briefing that morning, and they said, okay, we've, we've got you guys. Those of you that are going to the, the various A camps and, and B teams around the, head, the, uh, the country are going to go to a training program. Uh, that's right here at 5th Special Forces Group. But we have a requirement for probably 10, 12 people, something like that. And they said, we have a requirement because they said, look, we can't tell you what it is, but we're going to accept volunteers. That's also your love language. Yeah. You're, you're not good enough. We yeah. can't tell you what it is. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we need you to volunteer for it. And I thought, well, you know, I volunteered for the Army. I volunteered for the Airborne. I volunteered for special forces. Why not? So I volunteered. And that turned out to be assignment to MACV SOG. Uh, and I got assigned to the command and control detachment south and banned me to it. So you had to go through another school in the south. Right. right? When Jungle I, Warfare School or something in that, right, if I remember uh, correctly? When I, when I left, I went, it was recon team leader school. Uh, I left Natrang, flew up to Bammy to it with, I think it was two or three other guys. As soon as we got there, reported in, they said, okay, we, we're going to send you guys to recon team leader school at Long Ton, which is down by Saigon. 
what's the difference between Mac v. Sog and Special Forces? That's a good question. <laughs> the Special Forces in Vietnam, 5th Special Forces Group, had what they call projects. They had a, a project B-52, which was uh, an in-country reconnaissance operation. They had Mike forces, which were responsive forces to assist camps that were under trouble. And then they had camps throughout the, the entire country of South Vietnam, a 12-man camp. They would go in and they would conduct operations and work with the people within a particular area, those areas often tending to overlap or, or butt up against others so that there was a, a complete coverage uh, with special forces. And they were working with the indigenous forces of that area. MACB SOG was a very specific set of projects, Command and Control Detachment North, South, Central, and South. They were set up to conduct cross-border reconnaissance operations in Cambodia, Laos, and North Vietnam. So, I mean, I think legally there was some difference in the Pentagon set up some special unit because General Westmoreland Correct. couldn't go into Laos and Cambodia legally and stuff like that. I was just more, you all operated in really small teams. Very, very. We, all of us, we operated in normally six-man teams, two Americans and four indigenous personnel. Those four indigenous personnel could be Vietnamese, could be Chu Hoys, which were uh, North Vietnamese and Viet Cong that had surrendered themselves, uh, Chinese Nungs, which were mercenaries, or Mountain Yards. And I had a, I had a Mountain Yard team. So who are the Mountain Yards? Mountain Yards are indigenous uh, peoples to the Central Highlands of South Vietnam and North Vietnam now, the entire series of Vietnams. They were much like the American Indian. They were a people within the country that were, were separate from the norm. The Vietnamese often tended to look down on them and repress them in many ways, but they were a, a fantastically loyal and supportive people. And they had a warrior class within them, and, and those were the ones that you all yeah, they trained had, and fought. They had multiple castes. They had the Rade, which were the aristocrats, and I had a couple of Rade on my, my particular team that were interpreters. Then they had the, the Jirai, which were the warrior caste, and then Manongs, and there was another one that I can't remember the name of. But they had various castes within the, their society. Okay, so the mission of MACV SOG was to execute an intensified program of harassment, diversion, political pressure, capture of prisoners, physical destruction, acquisition of intelligence, generation of propaganda, and diversion of resources against the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. Does, does that sound about right? Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> <laughs> it was a multi-pronged organization. Depending on the mission and where you were and what you were supposed to do, any of that could play a part. So your first tour is which year? Uh, 69, 70. What was that like? I got there in April of 69, uh, went to Long Ton and then back to, to Bami Tuat and took over a team and started conducting operations. And I operated as far south as Canto in the Delta to Da Nang and Quezon in the north. So how are you doing all this? You know, because lots of times, you know, you're, you're at work and your boss says, hey, there's this new project, go do this. Or sometimes it's, hey, go take this trip to, you know, go to this software conference in Houston or 
Austin or whatever the case may be. W- with you, what's your camp life like? What's your cross-border operations life like? What, what's a day in the life of, of you and your team like at that time? Normally, I had between eight and 10 mountain yards that were assigned to my team and then me and another American. When we went on a mission, depending upon what was going on, we'd normally take four of those guys, add the two Americans. So it was a six-man team. And the missions would come down from MACV SOG headquarters in Saigon, and we'd be directed to a particular target area, wherever that might be, uh, in Cambodia, Laos, or wherever. The mission would come down. We'd do our mission planning. We'd fly normally uh, with a cubby, uh, one of our uh, Air Force facts to pick out that landing zone that we were going to use and the, the method that we were going to use to get in with. At South, we had our own uh, Air Force helicopters. The 20th Special Operations Squadron were actually encamped with us right at Bamituit. And so they had, I think it was called an in-model Huey, which had twin engines and uh, door-mounted miniguns. And so we had them to assist us and put us in and provide cover while, while we were inserted into a particular operational area. So I remember watching the, the Vietnam War series by, by Ken Burns, right? Which it's worth a watch. Right? It is. It on, is. On either side. And I remember a guy named Colonel Beckwith, who would become a friend of yours later on. Charlie Beckwith. Yeah. Talking about what, what awesome soldiers there were from, from North Vietnam. The oh, enemy. They're, they're, they're highly professional. They knew what they were doing. Uh, they had, in particular, they had, they called them ASUs, uh, which was an, an anti-Sue unit, which meant they were there to find us, organized just to chase recon teams once we were in place. And so Colonel Beckwith was absolutely correct that they were well-trained, well-equipped, and well-led. And so your job, by and large, was to go across the border and, what, gather intelligence? It depended on whether you went to a—we were going to a particular point or you were going to a trail and watch that trail and see what came down, or you were going to move to a particular area and see if you could find an actual facility, whatever it might be. And there were times when teams might be sent in to, to see if they could grab a prisoner. So what were the considerations as far as what you would carry? As light as you possibly could. Uh, of course, you carried your, your weapon and your ammunition. I carried a car 15. How many rounds? Um, normally, I'd carry, I think, about 18 magazines. Uh, I had a, an old World War II BAR belt. Worked just fine. Uh, there were times when I went a little heavier, but usually that would be about the average and probably four grenades. And then some smoke grenades for, for signaling aircraft if we needed to come out of a particular location. Our missions were normally set up for either five or ten days, somewhere in that time frame. Uh, sometimes we spent the whole time in there. Sometimes we'd spend 15 minutes and then come right back out. <laughs> Just depend on what we ran into <laughs> at, the, at that time. Uh, went light with equipment because we didn't need a lot of equipment. We, of course, had radios. Depending on the time of year, you might have a poncho liner or a very light indigenous type poncho that you could cover up with in, in case of rainy weather. A couple of different pairs of socks, maybe an extra pair of pants in case you ripped the ones you had. But that was about it. And then food, whatever food you might eat. So how much were you moving and how quickly? 
we moved very slow. Uh, there's times when we probably moved just a few kilometers a day. Uh, there were other times when we'd move a little faster, a little farther. And then there were times when we'd get chased and we'd move really fast, really far. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes you say you're, you're out to capture a prisoner. Or you're basically doing a reconnaissance mission. You've also done casualty recoveries, you I, name it. I was, yeah, uh, I was sent in one time to, to find a couple of Air Force pilots that had their aircraft had crashed. It was an F-4. We had to find them on the ground because we knew they'd, they'd parachuted out of their aircraft and somebody needed to go in and get them. I happened to be the closest team available, so they sent me. And that was really scary. That was probably scarier than anything else I did because I had to figure out how to contact them once we got close enough without being observed by enemy forces and at the same time not being shot by them. Well, they were still alive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They were scared. And rightly so. I mean, they're... They're great in their airplanes, but once they get on the ground, that's my world. And so to get into them and to, to link up with them and get them out, and we did. Uh, we were successful. So how long did that take? Once I'd been notified, it probably took me a day and a half to get close enough and to pass bona fides back and forth through the jungle so that they understood that I was an American and I wasn't trying to capture them or anything else. I was just trying to help them and get them out. So how did you pass bona fides in the jungle? With downed American uh, pilots. We, we tried all kinds of things. Uh, we, we, we tried sports teams and either one of us wouldn't, wouldn't know that particular sports team. And it was like, well, fuck, I don't know who they are. <laughs> you know, I don't know who the pitcher was that, at that World <laughs> Series game. I didn't watch the damn thing. Uh, so this so, is the middle of the day or this is at night? Or? Uh, it was kind of late afternoon. By the uh -huh. time we got there and, and figured we were close enough and then made kind of a voice contact, if you will, because we could hear them. And once I could hear them, I wanted to make sure that I didn't get so close that it would scare them and so close that they might shoot me. or, or And my mountain yards, if they get shot at, they're going to shoot back. So it's yeah. like, okay, I probably would have too. I don't know. So we just had to, to do it over a period of time. And we finally ended up doing geographical things. Okay, where, where the fuck are you from? Let's start there. And so we kind of talked it out a little bit. And finally, I just said, okay, look, you stand up, I'll stand up, and let's look at each other. And it, <laughs> it worked. <laughs> so we, we were able to get them out, and they were really happy to see us. So how'd you get them out? Uh, we moved to, a, to an LZ because there was helicopters standing by, and we, we called them in. And it worked out that we, we all came out at the same time because once the helicopters came in to get them, then that was a— a definite point on, of where somebody was for the North Vietnamese. And so we just, we pulled them out and left. Yeah. I mean, you see all these Vietnam war movies, you just assume that everyone rushing to the helicopter is going to get shot at. Pretty much. So that's not inaccurate. Uh, not totally. I mean, there were, there were times, certainly there, there were times when I went in, uh, I would conduct a mission and whatever that might be, uh, move to a trail and watch a trail for a while and then pull back and go back to an LZ and come out and there's never a shot fired. More often than not, there, was, there were some shots fired. So what's your battle rhythm like? How many missions a week, a month, a year? On average, probably two to three missions a month. Mm -hmm. uh, and and they, again, they could range from five to 10 days long. It depends on what, what came down from headquarters and what they needed to know about. So what did you learn that surprised you 
while you were in war as compared to when you thought you knew war before you'd gone? Well, I'd always had this idea that when you were in contact or when you were moving to contact, you knew it was going to happen. So you could kind of, in a sense, mentally prepare yourself. On the ground in Vietnam, particularly with Mac V. Sog, everything would be totally quiet, everything would be totally calm, and then all of a sudden it would just totally erupt. It was the surprise of the situation that probably got me more than anything that I wasn't ready for initially. So how did you respond? Well, luckily I'd been trained pretty well. And so I responded with appropriate action or inaction, whatever it might be at that particular time, either a fallback or a, or a move through. Uh, There's this idea out there of, of, you know, special forces guys are robots and don't feel anything. Oh no, you feel it. You feel it every time. It's there's, there's kind of a sinking, but then there's a, a girding where you, you just pull yourself together and respond functionally based on the situation, whatever that might be. Uh, you can tell quickly whether you can break contact and continue the mission or whether it's, it's so heavy that there's just no way out. And so you start calling for some help as best you can because there was very limited help. Again, it kind of fell back on the, the original training that I'd gotten at Fort Bragg that when you're across the fence, the only guys that can help you are, the, are those helicopters that I mentioned. You can't call fast movers. You can't call close air support. You can't call anything like that because we're not operating in those countries. So you're not even allowed to be there. So what, right. what you're saying is it's the big bombs, nothing. Yeah. It's, it's you and your you know, six-man team. Right. And you're moving sometimes a kilometer a day. Yeah. Could be, <laughs> depending on what kind of situation you were in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you think about your first tour, what was the sort of high and what was the low? I really enjoyed the mountain yards, getting to know them on a personal basis. As I said earlier, they're, a, they're extremely loyal people. They're great practical jokers. I had a, a, a Jirai that was on my team. He was my point man, Pai Hadak. He loved an M79. Uh, it's a grenade launcher. He just thought that was the best thing in the world. And he loved to carry the, the buckshot rounds, which were, were great for breaking contact because it would put out multiple projectiles. But anytime we'd insert, he'd always make sure that I jumped out of the helicopter first so he could jump out and land on top of me because he just thought that was cool. Uh, but, but learning those people and, and getting to know them, it took about a month and a half for them to really get comfortable with me. Cause again, you got to understand I'm there for a year. They're there for a lifetime, big difference. And they've been fighting this war their whole life, even as little kids. And most of the guys I had were between probably 22 and 30. So they'd been fighting it for some considerable amount of time. And so Took them about a month and a half to, to accept me, if you will. And then they invited me and, and uh, my other one, one, to go out to a, one of their villages. And we got to the village and there was an old, old mountain yard man that was a first sergeant of one of the exploitation companies at, B, at CCS. And he was a general in Full Row. Full Row was an organization within the mountain yard community 
that was their army, and he was a general. Well, he was there at this particular village. This was one. Of, this was his village. They invited us in, and the first thing we had to do as we as we arrived at the village was surrender our weapons, which was very uncomfortable. But based on their their culture, they become responsible when you enter their village for your safety. Now they did tell us where the weapons were, just in case something happened. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a it it was a show of honesty and trustworthiness. And they took us into one of their longhouses and had this fabulous feast and nampe, which is their rice wine. Every man in the village makes his own nampe, and it's basically fermented rice with banana leaves on top of it, water on top of that, and then each guy throws his own special talisman into the wine. It could be a rock could be a chicken foot, whatever he determined was his talisman. And then they'd seal it and they'd bury it in the ground and let it ferment. And then they'd bring it out. So you'd sit down and, and they had these bamboo straws. And the village headman would go to each jug, however many jugs were set out. And they were probably two and a half feet high. And he would drink from each one to prove to you that there was no poison. Okay. And... We went in, had dinner, ate all this food, and then they said, okay, now we drink some nampe. They said, this is a three-can party. Sure. Great. That's great. Well, we didn't realize it, but the can was a, was a tall Budweiser can <laughs> with the top cut out. And there's an old man sitting behind each jug of nampe. And there's a scribe mark in the top of the jug. And the water level is at that particular scribe mark. And as you sit down and drink with your left hand, he pours water in to keep the water level at that scribe mark. So I drank a few sips. And I, oh, this is wonderful wine. And I started to get up and they said, no, 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 no. <laughs> you have to drink three cans of water poured in. And you'd think, oh, well, okay, it's going to get better. It's going to dilute. Wrong answer. It just gets stronger. When I sat down in front of that jug, I was totally dry. When I stood up after three cans, I was soaking wet and I had sweat dripping off of my head. I put my foot through the floor. The guy that was with me fell through the side of the longhouse, taking out part of the wall. And we all just laughed about it and then went on about our business. But that was the kind of people that they were. And they were just, they were great people. But as we got to know them more and more, it made an impact on me that these were a people that were honest had high integrity, and their word was their bond, and they never left you. They didn't leave me. They didn't leave any of the Americans that I know of. That really made a, a big impression on me. So those are the sort of roots that they teach us about in, in the Q course, you know? It's sort yeah. of, this is what went on in Vietnam, and then there's, in Iraq, it's the Kurds, and it's, it's some of right. the, the, the Iraqi special operations units, and it's in Afghanistan, it's some of the, some, of the special operations units there that, that we've trained up. There's right. always just this cultural thing of working by, with, and through these local partner forces. And that's just what we do. And there are some good people everywhere you go. That's what is so enduring for me about my time in was the, it, it wasn't just the guy to my left and the guy to my right. Although if, if I have to choose, I want those two guys. Right. Right. We, we trained together. We right. deploy to war together. We come home together. You meet a lot of great people around the world in very unsuspecting yes. places. In your case, you know, the 
the Central Highlands in Vietnam with an indigenous tribe. Right. We, we tend to hear about, just as we hear about here in America, we hear about a very small minority of people that are problems. Most of the people that you go to help and those that you go to work with are good people. So one time we were on a checkpoint in Nazaria. It, it was a hot time in, in that mm-hmm. city. You, and you start to think that everything that's going on is just part of this crazy thing that's happening around you, right? Like the, the, the clerics sent down all these fighters and everyone's right. just in the streets. You forget there's millions of people there right. at times, right? And so you establish your, your Humvee, you have 50 cals mounted, you know, it's, it's all normal warfare stuff. Right. So every vehicle that comes through, you point your weapon at them, right? Sure. You let them know. You obviously are not just shooting indiscriminately right. or at all, if, if at all possible. So, you know, protocol is they, they learn to stop. They see you, they mm-hmm. stop. And it was this, uh, this husband and this wife, and she was pregnant trying to get to the hospital. Uh, and, yeah. it, and it was like, you become kind of like a cop over there. Yeah. You can tell what's legit right. and what's not. Right. And it was like, by all means, continue, <laughs> you know, God bless you. And yeah. And be on your be on your merry way, uh, all our best. And it's it's easy to just focus on the headlines of everyone's bad or right. whatever, right? And there's just so many people, good people, going about their daily lives, and and that's that's true pretty much everywhere. Absolutely, or it is true absolutely everywhere. Sure. So that was the high was getting to experience some of some of those. There was obviously mm-hmm. a lot of loss. What what was the what was the low? The low was was losing the friends that I had gone through training with, the, those that I had become become close to. I mentioned that there was 36 of us that went through training together. At the end of the first year in Vietnam, there were 16 of us left. And by the end of my second year in Vietnam, there were eight of us left. So there was a, a high rate of casualties, unfortunately. Many of those guys, those 36 guys, went to the, the CNC detachments, the command and control detachments at various locations. Really good guys that that I became friends with over a long period of time, not just in Vietnam, but prior to Vietnam. And and losing those guys and losing some of my mountain yards just as much because they were truly brothers in arms and we had faced the same situations and unfortunately they didn't didn't come through. And so it was that loss and it was, it was my concern that I had done or not done something uh, that got them killed, particularly the ones that were with me, my mountain yards and, and, uh, and other Americans. Uh, that, that weighs heavily. It, it, it still does. Uh, I've learned to work with it, but it's, that's, that's a very tough thing. When do you, when do you process that? Because if you're, if you're in the middle of something, there's, there's not really the time. I've, I've developed this, if you will, ability. I've got a box in my head. I think I've mentioned this before. I've got this box in my head, a big, thick wooden box with, with steel bands on it. And I, I have a traumatic situation, whatever that might be. I open that box and I put the situation in there and I shut it. And I carry on with whatever needs to be done at the moment. And then in my own time, in my own way, when I choose to, I take it out and I look at it and I evaluate it and I think through whatever 
situation, that particular item occurred, and then I'll put it away. So I'll, I'll take it out and put it away several times. And that's my way of working through as opposed to letting everything build up and just slam me. So that's that's something and I've, I've gathered over the years from you. I mean, it, it takes time to develop that. And, it does. And, and just to sort of relate this up a little bit, you know, you've got not even counting Vietnam era, you've got millions of Americans who've been to war, who know someone who, who passed away. Right. And what was it like, and I presume in, in Vietnam, it was still very young in your career. You hadn't sort of perfected this defense mechanism. True. Or whatever. But what was it like when you didn't control or couldn't control where it kind of showed up on your, on your front doorstep and said, hey, you're going to deal with this now? Again, I was lucky because I had some great mentors, people I could talk to. And when possible, I would, I would work through them to talk to them, usually through alcohol. Whis whiskey and rum worked really well. Uh, a little vodka from time to time. But at the same time, I realized that I needed to be very careful of that because I had seen people around me that had really turned into the bottle, if you will, and I didn't want to be one of those. It tends to be a lubricant, if you will. And so there were times, certainly, when those events hit me pretty hard. And so I would turn to the people around me, uh, those that, that knew me best. And there were very few of them. Uh, I, I don't tend to make friends very much, but when I do, they're, they're friends that you can count on. It's kind of, somebody told me one time, a friend is, is somebody you call and you say, bring guns and money. And all they ask is where, and that takes Amen. care of it. And so you, you learn to identify those people early on. And I was lucky that I had some very good friends that I could lean on that would get me through those tough times. So end of your first tour, and it's time to go back to America. Were you excited to go back? I was. I was kind of excited because we had a, a medic at CCS. He had to go home on leave. I think his sister or his mother or something. And so he went home, and he came back through San Francisco. And when he got back to camp, he said, you guys won't believe what's going on in America. And we're like, what, what, tell us. We saw the news and, and all of that stuff. And the hippie movement was big at that time and free love and all, all that kind of stuff. So Jack, what's going on? He said, you know, all those topless bars. And we said, yeah, yeah, we're, we're excited about that. And he said, they've gone bottomless. And we're like, what? <laughs> How cool is that? And he said, it's fucking terrible. And we're like, what do you mean? And he said, you get a beer and you sit down girl takes off all of her clothes. And he said, pretty soon you're trying to figure out what kind of watch she has on. <laughs> well, hell, but I, I was still excited to come home. I thought that was going to be a really cool thing. And it, it was, it was great to come back uh, to the world. We called it the world. And I came back through Fort Lewis again. And my parents actually came up and a girl that I'd been dating came up. And they picked me up at Fort Lewis, loaded me in the car, and we started driving back to Portland because that's where they were living at the time. And I was going to start there because I'd, I'd also worked through my dad to, to buy a car. I'd saved up all this money, and I wanted to buy a new car. Bought a Jaguar XKE Roadster. Loved that thing. Just I can feel your oh. grin, right? It's just oh. huge. Oh, it was, it was pale primrose, a very light yellow with a black Connolly leather interior. 
It was the ultimate car. And so they picked me up and I actually drove home and I invited one of the guys that had returned with me. He was headed for San Diego. And I said, well, you might as well come to Portland and you can get a plane out of Portland tomorrow morning. So he came with us and that was the night of the Academy Awards in 1970 that Marlon Brando sent a, a Native American to pick up his award. And I thought that was a little strange. And I was like, gee, that's, you know, if, if they're giving him an award, he ought to be man enough to stand up and take the damn award. And the girl that I'd been dating took offense to that and, and had some comments to be made. And, and she was a, a lovely girl. She was intelligent as hell. She was smart. And she was very pretty. And I said, really? You think that? She'd responded to me in a negative way. And I said, then you need to go out and get in the car and I'll take you home. And the guy that was with me said, Jesus, you're going to take this girl home? Don't don't you want to spend some time with her? And I said, not if she's got that kind of an attitude. So took her home, dropped her off, and he and I went out drinking. So that was my return to the United States. Other than we'd run into some people at Fort Lewis that came to protest the war. And, and I understand that's why I went to war, to allow people to do what they felt was appropriate to do. They're, they're certainly entitled to their opinion. I, I took umbrage when they spit at us, spit on the car, whatever, but it, I still got through that. It's okay. But it kind of set a tone for me that I didn't particularly like. And so I went back to Fort Bragg. I was assigned to the Special Forces Training Group at that time because they didn't really know what to do with me. So they were starting a new recon course out of at uh, Camp McCall, which is a, a satellite facility to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So they put me out there. I spent some time out there. It just, I just wasn't getting it. And that's when I volunteered to go back to Vietnam for my second tour and went back to Bambi to it. Just seemed like the right thing to do. So is it that classic case of can't be home, got to go back to war? I mean, is that a, is that a stereotype or was that a little bit of reality? Well, I came back and, and during the two weeks, I guess it was, that I was with my parents and, and friends, I alienated virtually everybody I ran into because I just had this attitude about America being ungrateful uh, and not really caring about what was going on with the individuals. Vietnam be damned. It was about the individuals that were there to uphold American policy and diplomacy and so on. It created this turmoil in my mind that I didn't like what I saw in America. I didn't appreciate it because they didn't appreciate me. And that, that was the wrong attitude, but it was the attitude that I came back with. How did your, how did your parents feel? They tried to be as supportive as they possibly could. They, and they were very supportive. They, they tried to understand. We sat down to dinner one night and... My, my dad was saying a prayer at, at, the, at the table, and I had my head bowed over, and a piece of shrapnel fell out and bounced on the plate. <laughs> Just a little a piece of grenade stuff or something, I don't know. From what? It, it fell out of my head. It just Shrapnel tends to work its way out once in a while when it's, you know, particularly around the head because uh, there, there's no subcutaneous fat to hold it in. And so it just kind of... It fell out and bounced on the plate and everybody Subcutaneous like, sounds like a word that you, you learn really what it's about when you start to study all about the shrapnel that you have in your head. <laughs> That's what the doc said. And so I, you know, it, it was like, oh, you didn't tell us about that. And I said, it, 
was just a little happenstance. It, it was not a big deal. I'm fine. I just want to get on with life. And I think that was the big thing. Nobody knew how to help me get on with my life, whatever that might be. Hell, I couldn't even explain it at the time. And so it was a learning process for me and a learning process for them. And I wasn't learning exactly as fast as I probably should have. But that's just welcome to the world. I mean, was it strained though? Was, I mean, mom gave you a big hug when you got back. Oh I'm yeah, sure that's... yeah, yeah. I mean, they were as nice as they could be. They were they were supportive, and I remember my dad took me down to pick up the new car. But it seemed like every turn I made, somebody was trying to put a, a wall, and it, it was me being too sensitive. Because when I walked into the showroom, my car was sitting on the showroom floor with these big uh, red nylon ropes that they used to use in theaters mm-hmm. to, to block. Well, that was around my car. And a big sign said, you know, do not touch this car or something like that. And I was, I just stepped over the damn sign because that's my car. And I walked up to it. And of course, one of the salesmen immediately ran up and said, sir, please step away from the car. I <laughs> No, that's, you don't understand. That's my car. You need to shut up and get away. So was, I, I was a little too touchy. Yeah. And so I, it seemed like everywhere I went, that's what I was running into. The, the, the girl, I mean, she was, she had her right to her opinion, but she chose the wrong time to voice it. Uh, and so it just seemed easier to me once I got back to Bragg. The, the only guy that seemed to really get it when I think back about it was my grandfather in Texas my mother's father. He had gone to two years of a theological seminary, and these are his own words, not mine. Decided that they were all a bunch of hypocritical sons of bitches, and he was going to go be a cowboy. And that's what he did. He went to be a cowboy uh, on several of the big ranches in Texas. So when I got to them, as I, as I made my way back to Fort Bragg, he was the only one that, that seemed to get it. He didn't push me. He didn't press the issue. He just sat down and talked to me about life, about how life changes and how to deal with life's changes without telling me this is what you should do. Not a well-educated man, but a really smart man. He said, you know, we all choose different ways to move through this world. Some, some choose a, a, an easy path and some choose a hard path. You've chosen a hard path, but that's okay. You just need to learn to work through it. And so he, he seemed to understand me immediately better than anybody else. I got back to Bragg, and I just seemed to be out of touch. I, I was out of step with everybody. And so that, that decided me that, okay, I need to go back to Vietnam. And there were a lot of guys that spent multiple tours in Vietnam, I think, for that very reason. And so you go back. You, you know what to expect. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and then some. Yeah. I went back to the same place, Bammy to it, uh, CCS. I picked up several guys from my old team. They'd been split up, uh, but I picked up several guys from my old team and kind of continued on. And I, but I looked at myself a little differently. Not that I knew everything, because the one thing you learn, or I think you do, as you go to war multiple times, is you learn how much you don't know, and you learn how much more you can gain from other people around you. And so... I had some inherent knowledge, but I also realized that I didn't know everything there was to know and I better learn. And I think that started me on this whole education kick. Every day in life is an education, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing. 
life is a continual process of education. So, so how did that play itself out? What was different about your second tour? The missions had changed somewhat at that point in time. Some of the same areas, but, but with different requirements. But it was still business at the same old pop stand. I mean, it was, we were still doing a lot of the same stuff. Uh, we were just looking at different things, and it almost seemed as if the direction had become different. The direction that we got from higher headquarters was, was looking for different things rather than just purely tactical things. They were looking for strategic things. And so we, we kind of tried to open up a little bit and, and get better at what we were doing. So give me an example. When, when we would put into a, a particular target area, it was more about what was happening within that entire target area than any one particular thing. Before, we'd been looking at very specific things. Now we were looking at a broader spectrum. Yeah, we'd look at trails maybe, but we were looking at organizations to try to identify organizations and major movements of equipment and logistics. And so was this around the time they had developed? Because I know the enemy the enemy always has a vote. You realize that too. You yeah. have all these great plans. and Oh, yeah. And the enemy is really smart. Oh, they're getting smarter all the time. That They're well-led. I mean, that... That was one of the things that, that I think came out in, in Ken Burns' Vietnam series. A lot of Americans tended to think that, that we were the, the ultimate technology and the, and the leaders. There were fine leaders on the other side, too. And, and the jungle and the home court advantage is a pretty great equalizer. Yes, it is. It's a, they, it's a strong home court advantage. They knew the area, they knew the peoples, and they could make things happen that we couldn't. So in their, their sort of adaptation to your missions, because your high risk, high reward was, I would bet how you know, Washington or the Pentagon would have viewed Mac v. Sog. Sure. You're, you're trained and capable and willing to do things that not only other people can't, but won't do. Mm-hmm. And sure. you know, there's high risk, high reward. And so that makes you more valuable for the enemy to stop. Right. You started to notice some differences Right. And why are they here in this spot at this time? This doesn't make any sense. This is when you started to realize that they were out specifically for you. Yes. Because so, they had they had developed these teams and they were before it had always been or for the most part it had been localized teams. Whatever local military unit was there, they'd sweep through the jungle or they'd do whatever, they'd chase us for a while. But nobody was as best I could tell there were very few that were actually targeted against us. Second tour, they were targeted against us very specifically. And it, it seemed really strange that they knew where we were going to be. I think it was probably because they had saturated the areas that were most prevalent for operations, for our operations, but don't know. I mean, you said before, you always feel it, but, but what's that specifically like? Because you know, this day and age, Americans are not typically hunted. True. In, right. in matters of violence, offense is always safer. Correct. And so this is a different situation. I mean, I, it kind of makes my skin crawl a little bit. Well, more than ever before, we were, we were targeted by someone very specifically. Prior, we'd poke into a unit and they'd chase us. Uh, I'll go back to Pai Hadak. This was on my first tour. We were moving through a particular area. And as I said, Pi liked to carry the, the shotgun around for the M79 grenade launcher. Well, unbeknownst to me, he'd changed his mind that day. 
we were moving through a, a, an area of rather tall trees, low grass, about knee high, with a few bushes. And all of a sudden, Pi held up his fist. So we stopped. And I saw him crouch down. So everybody crouched down. And then all of a sudden, he popped up and shot. What he'd seen was a, a man moving towards him with an AK-47. It was a North Vietnamese soldier. And he shot him in the chest with a CS round, uh, like tear gas. Didn't kill him. Hurt him really bad. <laughs> but, it, but it didn't kill him. So all of a sudden, we had contact front. And so we started moving away from that. And there was a covey over us at the time, an Air Force fac. And I called him and I said, hey, look, you know, uh, I think we've got a real problem here as we're moving back. We're falling back slowly. And he said, okay. He said, let me look around. And he said, yeah. He said, you can't move that direction, which was basically north. There looks to be about a company-sized element out there. They're coming through the grass. I said, okay. He said, don't move east because there's another company over there. And he said, don't move west because there's another company over there. This happened over a period of time as he was looking. So it was like, well, I guess south is it. <laughs> And he said, yeah, he said, that, that kind of seems open right now. He said, but you're going to move into an area across a creek and into a, a kind of a pockmarked area, which appeared to be and was, in fact, a, uh, an arc light area where uh, B-52s had actually dropped the bombs. And so there was craters and everything there. He said, I guess that's as good as any. He says, I can probably get some helicopters in there. And so we, we got into a pretty serious firefight in the he finally got the helicopters and they tried to get us out. And again, this was, they weren't there for us. We just happened to run into them. And what we ran into was the, the tail end of a regiment. And we got six guys. So it's like, well, shit. So we, we get into the craters and, and we're, we're doing the best we can. And one of the helicopters, the Air Force helicopters, came in to get us out. And he was shot down. So we got their crew to us. And so we're all now on the ground and all the other helicopters had to leave because they ran out of fuel. And so we're like, well, I don't know what we do at this point. We're across the fence. A Covey in the meantime had called up some guys that were, I think they were first CAV guys. They called it a pink team. It was a small OH-6 with two uh, Cobra helicopters, gunships. They came in and helped us, and then the OH-6 actually landed and extracted 10 of us my six-man team and the four-man team from the, from the Air Force helicopter. And it kind of blew my mind. And it didn't fly very well, but he got us out of there to, to, to get where we needed to go. I mean, did the three companies just collapse on you? Or? Yeah, pretty much. They, they moved in rather a U-shape so that they could contain us, continue to contain us. Uh, so they, the, the two on the east and west moved south, and then the, the one from the north moved south. And they tried to, to, to pincer us, but it didn't, didn't work out quite the way they wanted because of the terrain that was involved. But it was, it was, a, it was a little dicey. But they, but they finally got us out. Uh, that was a, a situation where they weren't there looking for us. Yeah. Later on in, the, in the, the next tour, they were actually looking for us. They, they deployed teams just to chase us. And I figured that out because the, they would yell to each other. And I asked the mountain yard, my interpreter, I said, what are they saying? And he said, they're saying, kill the mountain yards and capture the Americans. That's pretty, pretty specific. They, they knew what they were, they were after. 
And so it was, I won't say it was a totally different war, but it was a totally different concept at that point in time. So how much better of a soldier did you become from tour one to tour two? What, what's the learning curve like when you're, you're going through these kinds of experiences? You gain an inherent knowledge of how people react both on your team and on the enemy side. It doesn't mean you, you know exactly what they're going to do, but you gain more of an inherent knowledge of, of the situation and the fluidity of the situation and, and how best to respond or how best you think you can respond. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It wasn't just me. We would sit around back in base camp and we would talk to each other, the various team leaders and, and the, the assistant team leaders. We'd talk to each other about what we'd encountered and what we had seen and what we'd experienced. And you, you continually learn. It goes back to that, that tribal oral knowledge that I was talking about earlier, that uh, the knowledge of the tribe is passed amongst the tribe for the welfare of all. So what would you say were the, the couple bullet points or what, what were the keys to success for you? Don't overreact. React, but don't overreact. Stay calm and make every shot count. <laughs> And, and then process-wise, afterwards, the importance of this, this right. tribal community that you're in, just right. talking about it. You sit down and you talk about it. Well, and you've, I found that, that when I'd sit down and talk about what had happened to me, it helped me to figure out what I had done right and what I had done wrong. And it, it became almost a hot wash where people would say, well, you know, if you'd done that, you probably would have been better off. Or... Yeah, that was a good move there. So you, you learn from your own mistakes. Uh, hopefully you learn before you do something stupid. Were there different highs and lows this trip or was it, do the two trips kind of blend together? They tend to, because there wasn't that much time in between, mm -hmm. probably five months in between. So they, they tend to kind of blend together and one becomes an, an extension of the other to a degree. Uh, there were differences. Uh, there were some differences in support because about, I think it was about halfway through the second tour, we lost the, the dedicated helicopters. And it really makes a difference that you practice the way you're going to fight. And so you gain experience and knowledge. And when you lose that, it creates a void, but, but not a terrible void. We, we worked with some really great people from the Army side too. So were you excited to go home? I was hesitant to go home. I felt like it was time to go home. Because you kind of get to this point, you say, you know, I've, I've kind of pushed my luck. I've gone quite a ways here and it's time to go home. But at the same time, I didn't want to run into the same thing that I'd run into before. And so I, I, I kind of sat down. I talked to a couple of guys about it. I had a, a guy that was uh, one of the older team sergeants that I was able to talk to. He pointed out that the, the first time I went back was, was a good part of my own fault. It wasn't everybody around me. I, was, I wanted to blame everybody else. I didn't want to blame me. I'm cool. And, and he pointed out that I wasn't as cool as I thought I was. And he was absolutely correct. I needed to make some different corrections on my part to better fit back into society. Now, the other thing was when I came back the second time, society had changed a little bit. It had mellowed and I mellowed. I kind of had to work at it once in a while, but it worked out okay. What do you mean mellowed? I didn't look at everybody as the enemy. 
after the first time when I when I came back, I started looking at kind of everybody, all Americans, as the enemy. I mean, here I'd I'd kind of laid my my ass on the line, and they didn't appreciate it. And I was like, they aren't supposed to appreciate it. That's not their job. Your job is to do what you signed up to do. Their job is to be Americans. And that's a pretty cool thing. And so that attitude helped me. So what was your perspective on, I mean, did what you do mattered? Did you make a difference? I tried to convince myself, and there was a couple of areas that I felt pretty good about. One of the things that we did in Vietnam was supported that organization I mentioned earlier, and that was Full Row, the, the Montagnard Army. We provided them with weapons, ammunition, claymore mines, explosives, hand grenades, so on, to defend themselves in their villages. We provided them training, how to build better villages, how to build more defendable villages. And I felt good about that. And that became kind of a focus for me, an important focus, that we had helped those people do what, what was right for them, for their kids, for their, for their wives, for their families. And I felt really good about that. I feel like there's a but. But I, I felt like something was left undone, that we hadn't completed what we were supposed to do. And that didn't come until 45 years later. On the first trip that you and I, Andy and Paul, made to Vietnam, after a night of drinking beer. <laughs> There's something new. <laughs> yeah. And listening to the roosters, we went to the American War Museum. They get to call it the American War Museum because they, they, they kind of won the war. And while we were there, at one point it was kind of hot and I'd, drank a lot of beer, and I decided I'd sit down. I sat down in this one, one room, and a gentleman came up, and he said, excuse me, he said, are you an American? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you mind if I sit down? I said, no, please. And he said, I'm from Singapore. I said, oh, okay. And he said, did you fight in Vietnam? And I said, yes, I did. And he said, well, I'd like to thank you. And I said, for what? Because nobody had ever thanked me. He said, I'd like to thank you. He said, because me and all of my friends look at what you and the American country did in Vietnam, South Vietnam. And he said, you stopped communist aggression in Southeast Asia. You stopped it from spreading across all of Southeast Asia. And this is, I, I don't know what his profession was. I don't know what his educational level was, although he seemed to be pretty well-spoken. He said, I'd just like to thank you for what you did. And that really struck me that we had done something truly positive for a greater amount of people rather than just for our own politicians or whoever it might be. And that was an important closure, point of closure for me. I don't know how to ask the next hard question, but is, is, that, is that reality? There's some truth to that. I mean, it's sort yeah. of, you know, how, do you, how do you make sense of everything. I mean, talk about your class, how many of you went over and how many two years later? And it's not just the specific lives lost. It's the, the rest of their lives that are, that are lost as well, their impact on America. Sure. And yet, you know, here you are and your impact on America for the rest of your life was stronger because of the experiences that you had going through those experiences. I don't think there's any way to make sense of it. I'm just sort of prodding a little bit. Yeah, I, I think every, every comment that's made about anything in the world needs to be taken with a grain of salt. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and his <laughs> his comment while while appreciated and and while it made me accept another perspective i don't take it at absolute face value but i think there is some truth to it in, in essence what we what we got into in in vietnam was a prolonged effort and i think it proved at least to the countries in Southeast Asia and to, to China in particular, that a prolonged effort was not worth what they would get at the end. Because certainly Vietnam is a communist country, if you will now, but I saw an awful lot of capitalism when I was there. Yeah, I mean, we were walking around I mean, Hanoi at six in the morning drinking our Starbucks. You listen, know? I mean, who won again? Yeah, yeah, exactly who won. Yeah, what, yeah. <laughs> There are no win- clear winners and losers. And there's a lot of loss, but but there is a lot of loss. And that's something that you you've got to deal with on an individual level every day. And I do uh to a certain degree, but at the same time it's what we all signed up for. It's what we agreed to. So it was productive to go back. It was worthwhile to serve. It was productive to go back because it closed a circle for me that I didn't know was open in my life. It created a a closure to a certain degree. It was productive for me to serve because I learned so much from so many, both Americans, Montagnards, Vietnamese. If you don't learn from everybody you come in contact with, you're a damn fool. And I've been lucky to, to have run into some really smart people throughout my career and throughout my life. And so as we wrap this up, one of those smart people that you mentioned was, was Colonel Charlie Beckwith, who was also in Vietnam. He was. He was the, the commander of, of B-52, and he led a strike force. And he was a great American. I think everyone agrees to that. Yeah. And he would later tap you on to go, and you can tell it better than I can. At the end of the Vietnam War, there were about 12,000 active duty special forces soldiers and that was reduced within a very short period to 3,000 because the army hierarchy, the, the big army hierarchy at that time, didn't appreciate special forces, uh, didn't think we were a, a viable entity, and so they cut back tremendously. Luckily, there were some forward-thinking people, including people like Colonel Beckwith and General Kingston and many, many others that kept special forces, while not in the forefront kept it active and functional. And he went on to, to have, in my mind, up to that point and beyond a, a storied career of developing organizations and units. And I, I was lucky enough to serve with him multiple times. Well, we'll have to talk about that maybe some, maybe in a decade or something. There you go. <laughs> but uh, so final question is you chose to go to Vietnam. You chose to go to the front lines of Vietnam paratrooper, special forces, MACV SOG. You know, you show up after your first tour, you're dropping shrapnel at the dinner table with, with mom and dad. You know, you think this is normal. It's pretty normal. <laughs> I mean, you, you want to go back because you miss, you miss the mission. You miss the, the camaraderie. You miss the service. You miss your team. True. And as we, we think about what it means to be a professional, a glorious professional, What's your advice to, to the next generation based on what you've learned? I think the, the best advice I could give is find appropriate and certainly qualified mentors, people that will help you grow as an individual, 
people that will support you in becoming educated and aware of yourself and of what's going on around you, particularly of yourself. I think that's probably the most important thing is find a mentor that will will help you find yourself. And it isn't always pretty and it isn't always fun, but it's it's an educational piece that will serve you well in life. I was lucky to have found some some excellent mentors. They prepared me in those early years for a life well beyond what I ever thought I was going to do. And I think that's probably the most important thing you can do. Pursue education and mentors and then become a mentor yourself. Well, thanks for being one of mine, Rich, and, and thanks for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. That's a wrap on episode three of Glorious Professionals. Big thanks to Rich for coming on. You know, that's, that's obviously just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the stories that he has to share. Hopefully we'll have him back soon. Thanks for listening.